You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas behind your favorite online brands. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Adam Simone, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stefan. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So you are the co-founder and COO of Leaf Shave. Uh, Leaf Shave is one of my favorite new products that I've discovered recently, oh, although I'm not a, a user of it yet, but I feel mm-hmm. like I could. I do a lot of shaving. Everyone shaves something. <laughs> something. And I'm holding it right here. And you showed me this product probably, what, like a year and a half ago or something? Yeah, you were thereabouts. At, at one of our events. And it's just a beautiful razor. And the company has grown and evolved since then in, in a tremendous way. How do you describe Leaf Shave these days? Sure. So I believe that uh, from, from our perspective, Leaf Shave, we, we design beautiful, modern, sustainable shaving razors. And I think uh, pretty firmly that we're building the next great razor brand. I say that Mm. seriously because we have something really unique. Uh, There's nothing quite like us out there. Okay, that's a big claim. So, so because I, I feel like uh, obviously you know there there are the all the the big shaving companies of mm-hmm. the world of the the Gillettes and all those folks, and then there's all of the startup people, and they've like you know captured quite a big part of the market. So, how do you they describe have. the the differentiation of what you're building? Absolutely, it's actually core to why we started Leaf Shave as a company. We took a look at what was happening in the market in 2012, 2013 where you had your Dollar Shave Clubs, your Harry's, these, the first wave of these e-commerce uh, razor brands coming out. And their products are the same that Gillette and Schick and all the big shave companies have been in production with for 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. It's a disposable cartridge head on top of a plastic handle. Mm-hmm. Honestly, no true innovation there. So it, it was interesting to us. The innovation is more in the fact that it's e-commerce and direct-to-consumer. Yeah, business model innovation. Total props to them. They built great businesses. We weren't going to enter the space unless we could actually develop and design a new type of razor. Mm. And Gillette has been in business since 1901-ish, roughly. And it, there's a hole in their offerings from original safety razors, which is kind of where they started. Uh, safety razors persist through today. There's a huge community globally that uses these. And the modern pivoting head, multiple blade systems that you, you see today. And, and that middle ground between those, no one saw it except mm. for us. And we developed that, which is basically a, a love child between a safety razor and a modern cartridge razor. And okay, so. A big part of it is also just kind of the device itself, like the handle that you've designed and we're looking at it. And I don't you think we can really do it justice in an audio <laughs> format, but this is like a... Yeah. I, I'm trying to think of like a product that this reminds me of. Like, what are your inspirations when you think of the engineering? This is a hefty thing. How much does it weigh? It's like... Yeah, so it's it like weighs about nice, four and a half ounces. Yeah, it's like heavy, but it feels really great in the hand. It, it's like a, a piece of high-end kitchen gear. I, mm-hmm. I'm a cooking nerd. I don't know. Yeah. Like, what is like the thing that you would compare this to in terms of like the, the fit and finish of it? What are you shooting for when you're designing this? We really wanted something that would be built to last for life mm. and also to be used as a, a tool because it is something that you use every day, right? So... Uh, for, for us, the balance was to make something that was pleasant to behold that you wanted to put out on your uh, bathroom countertop, not hide away 
uh, behind a mirror or something, but was also very effective at doing the job, uh, which is to say you're, you're going to shave every day, so it must be able to shave really well. Uh, so, so our inspiration really is well-designed tools that do a job while also having uh, strong uh, aesthetics and pleasing uh, interaction. But you also come from a medical ba- background as well. Yeah. So, yes. so I think that when you think about, you know, what tools is, you know, a surgeon going to use, like they're going to have a, like a higher level of caliber of a tool that they want to use every single day because their job depends on it. Right. That's interesting. I like your answer better now. So my co-founder and I came from the medical device industry, like, like you mentioned, uh, before starting this company, we developed and launched and commercialized a robotic system for orthopedic surgeons. Mm. And the key there was that this was a handheld robot, uh, which means that it worked much like a surgeon holding a smart drill that knew where it was in time and space. And the needs of the surgeon community are to have a device that gets the job done but which is durable because it goes through a lot of use and sterilization and these other kind of use cases. Uh, And so you're right. I mean, maybe unconsciously we were developing a medical device grade tool for consumer modern use. And I'm fascinated by that. This was kind of the inspiration for this podcast in the first place of like (laughs) well-made products, things that can last a lifetime and this is not um, what I would call necessarily like a wabi-sabi type of product. It's not a product like a leather uh, baseball glove that, you know, you want to keep for a long time because it's going to start to like conform to your hand. This is like by surgeon's tool, like there's a tank. This thing is going to live forever because That's it's right. like built out of steel. What is? What are the different materials that this is made out of? Yeah, it's all metal. Uh, it's primarily zinc and stainless steel. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other part of it that I think of when I think of things that are designed to last is just like the aesthetics of it are not particularly like fashionable or something like that. They're not trying to be trendy or anything. They're trying to be comfortable. That's maybe where this starts to like differ from a purely medical grade kind of device. It's more, you know, it's trying to appeal to, to, to people. You've got different finishes I forget which one what was it that you launched with. There's like a more of a chrome type of yeah, finish. Yeah, we launched with a chrome. When we did our Kickstarter back in 2016, our original lineup was intended to be a chrome, a white razor, and a black razor. That's the one you have here, right? That This is actually a new type of black razor. Uh, so we now have two. We have a matte and a shiny black. This matte one is like very tactical looking. It is. <laughs> I, I think I like to say this is the one Batman would use to shave with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then now you've got more colors too, right? We you've do. got like a ro- rose gold and other things. Yeah. We actually never were able to commercialize the white razor from mm. the Kickstarter. Uh, it, we couldn't manufacture that finish in a mm. way that was durable or, or up to the quality standards that we really needed. So we ended up pivoting to a rose gold razor. The white is, yeah, fascinating. I keep mentioning my friends from Studio Neat, Tom and Dan, like they always come up like on the podcast and different stuff. They've been, uh, I forget the episode number offhand, but they've been going down this adventure of building uh, a pen that has like very similar type of like fit and finish and is all like milled out of steel. And the white Mm -hmm. was just like so hard to produce and getting the, the coatings right. And so... I do want to like delve into a little bit of the manufacturing. I think that's something that with this particular product and the way that you approached it with Kickstarter, I feel like that would have been a tall order for people who are not engineers themselves. You and your co-founder have that background and you're you're self-funded. So you yeah. really needed to have that level of exper- expertise like in-house to be able to like 
develop this? Because how many hours of actual like engineering time went into it? Oh, uh, honestly, countless. We started developing razors almost five years ago while we were working at this other startup and growing that business. Uh, so in our spare time, after hours, my partner spent, he would work an eight-hour, nine-hour day and then stay in his office for another four hours yeah. after work and, and, and just hammer away at the If design. you were paying an engineer to do that, <laughs> I don't know if you would, you know. Yeah, I mean, we were talking be, about blades against fa- and skin, mm-hmm. right? So it has to be very, you have to have the precision. And then the, the challenge is you can design a very precise tool and technology, but then you have to get it made to that level of precision while having it meet your price point expectations. So there's a lot there um, when you're developing a, a razor type of tool. So let's go back to the business model. Obviously, the the idea of, you know, razors and razor blades is literally like a business model, yeah. you know, nickname for the, the, the idea of just having this like one product and then a consumable that mm-hmm. you keep buying, you know, and I think that's been the success for a lot of the e-commerce DTC uh, companies like Dollar Shave Club. Um, is that they've really innovated on the on the second part of that? Is it a fool's errand to go and try and build this like you know beautiful handle and then you know what's the what's the part two to that? Are you also making blades and trying to build that side of the business as well, or how do you think about it? That's a question that we addressed early on internally and then quickly tossed it aside and said we've solved it. And the answer is we were just going to flip the business model and make it work which is to say instead of making money on the ongoing blades and having a loss leader handle, we're going to charge a fair price for the handle that lets us take margin to build our business, but will also lets the consumer have a balance of value. And then we're not going to lock them into any proprietary blades. These are open source blades. There are dozens of manufacturers around the world that make double-edged blades that will fit into this razor. We're perfectly happy outfitting everyone in the world with a leaf razor and then retiring. Okay. <laughs> well, and that's the good thing about, I guess, uh, the approach that you've like funded the business with. I guess that's, that's good. right. And that 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 is like again to the philosophy of you know a well made like a long lasting product. You've got like, can it actually last? You know, physically, can it last through kind of the trends and stuff? But also, does yeah. it have utility over time? And I think, I mean, obviously, most people are going to be shaving throughout their whole life, you know, that is a, a thing that some companies, especially like venture backed ones have to contend with is eventually you run out of customers. Like if you, right. if you have this like beautiful, well-made thing, then maybe you, you run out of customers. I don't think you're it's like you're the singer sewing machine, right? Sure. It's a classic example. Uh, we tried to shoehorn a different business model into this early on when we were considering whether we could raise money for the business and whether that was the right choice mm. for us. And that model was we would develop consumables, shave cream and, and aftershave. And then if someone bought those from us, we would give them the blades for free. Mm-hmm. The concept would be, uh, okay, we've got recurrent customer there and the value to bring them back with uh, would be d- d- shaving essentially free for life by just buying your shave cream and aftershave from us. Mm-hmm. We really tried to make that work. It, it didn't really work out. Mm-hmm. We quickly figured that out and um, in a sense, then we've just really refocused on what our strengths are, which is developing unique, innovative razors. So how much does one of these things go for? So the razor itself is, with a 20-pack of blades is, is 79 bucks, mm-hmm. And then there's a starter kit for a little over $100. Do you sell blades also? We do, yeah. Okay. We have a, a blade manufacturer in Israel, and they provide our blades for us. And uh, we, we sell them on our site so people can get their blades from us. Uh, but one of the great things about the razor is there's, like I said, so many different types of blades made 
that you can kind of customize your shave experience with it by putting a different type of blade in. Mm. You could put a Japanese feather in, which is a very sharp blade if you want something a little bit different, a little bit more aggressive of a shave. Or ours, which is a little bit kind of in the mid-scale as far as sharpness is concerned and aggressiveness of the blade itself. Hmm. And so how many of your customers are you finding like actually end up buying the blades from you as well? Or does that, is that something? Well, we, you know, we're about 12 months into our commercial phase, we'll call Hmm. it, after we fulfill Kickstarter. And we give people enough blades to last them about 12 months. So We'll find out. You haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> well, I mean, why not both, I guess, is, is the, the thing that comes to mind immediately. Like, if you, if you build loyalty around the razors, like, why not also have the ability to, you know, provide them the replenishments when they need them? Definitely. And that's why we stock the blades. And, you know, we, we're going to be, I think, not this year, but probably next year, coming out with a Gen 2 consumable as shave soap and, and some of those more frequently consumed accessories but the word you used there was build the loyalty with the brand and and so that's what we're trying to focus on right now is just Mm. building that trust with the customer and then as we take our time and not rush through these things and come out with a sustainably made and packaged shave soap then you're going to trust that that's a good choice for you well you mentioned at the very beginning sustainability being a priority what is you know how do you think about that yeah it's such a multivariate question we start our conversation around sustainability with the product itself Mm -hmm. in that if you use a leaf razor to shave and you're coming from a cartridge or disposable world, then you're immediately offsetting one of the biggest wastes in your bathroom, which is these, these disposable razors. You can continue down the supply chain and packaging chain to further identify opportunities to be more sustainable and uh, we are slowly working our way through that. We get questions sometimes about the deeper supply chain sustainability, like sourcing mm. of raw materials. Right. We're just not there yet. We don't have that visibility. We're not big enough to have those audit and conversations. But as we grow, it's on our to-do list. Never perfect, always improving. We're recording this like the day after Earth Day where Jeff, right. I've just been like going nuts because uh, I, I also work with the editorial team on all the content that goes out for our blog and for YouTube. And we just like pushed so much stuff out uh, this week. It's been really fun. But every time you like start to try to understand something, there's like 20 new questions that pop up because I still drive a gas powered car. I don't know if I'm going to own another car after this, but I always wonder to myself, what's worse? Like for me to keep driving this gas powered car and like, run it into the ground, like, you know, wear it completely out or buy a brand new like Tesla or something like in terms of the amount of materials and everything that's going to go into like building that thing. It's complicated. Yeah. It's not a straightforward answer. It's like the the Patagonia story with Mm. their poly bags in their production process. I mean, it's not always as straightforward as don't have plastic in your process. Sometimes you need certain things over others. But when you think about the like classic like Bic razor, like that thing that is just, I mean, that's the probably the most sold razor in the world, I would assume. No? What do that, you think? That disposable. Yeah, the completely like basic one one single blade razor. It, it, it might be. I think so if you look at the volume of blades sold, actually 
double-edged blades are the most consumed shaving implement mm. and largely because they're so so cheap pennies that you've got a lot of the world's population who can't afford a five dollar gillette cartridge mm-hmm. shaving with these in traditional safety razors so honestly we see that and we're excited because there's opportunity to provide a elevated shaving experience around the world at different price points but we're not even close there yet but yeah, i would say bic is probably the number three shaving brand in the world yeah, I'm just thinking in terms of like the mountains of plastic that it like ends up generating. Yeah, that's a big contributor. <laughs> I've been like searching. You know what? You know what you should make next is a toothbrush. Uh, it's uh, funny that you say that. I mean, it, that was the second thing on my this partner's name is also Adam. Adam Han. That Adam and I's uh, list was let's tackle razors and then let's get to toothbrushes quickly because they're so wasteful. Yeah, toothbrushes. It's just like I mean, you know. Doctors recommend, you know, you you, right. you you throw them out after a month. And yeah, there's like electric ones and there's, you know, there's a lot of different options out there. I guess if you're in the market for a non-electric toothbrush, you're kind of, there's not really that much out there. There's like stuff made out of bamboo. Right. There's some, there's some different things out there, but they're all still kind of along the lines of something disposable that is yeah. just like going to pile up in some sort of landfill or something. Absolutely. And, and largely in the, the, the most used disposable in the, in the uh, toothbrush space, you're using the bristles up, but right. the handle's perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. Craziness. It's actually, that's where, that's a great analogy to our razor because you're throwing away a cartridge where the blades themselves are used up, but the plastic that's holding these four blades from Gillette or Schick or something, the plastic's fine, it works, and which is why we stripped the plastic away and we said, just throw away the used blades with our razor. That's all, all you need to do. But I think that that Bic razor was actually one of the very first like injection molded oh, um, yeah. products that really went up to high scale in terms of like tens of millions of them being produced. I wouldn't be surprised. Because they're also well known for their pens, you know, like right. the classic Bic pen that, that, that those products were some of the very first like injection molded. And it was like, now we're like, on, on the like uh, curve of like everyone in America is realizing that, you know, there's a problem with the way that things are being made. But, you know, 50, 60 years ago, it was like, look at this incredible innovation um, right. that now we can pop these out and like out of a mold. And, and it's so cheap for us to give the entire world, you know, a 15 cent uh, razor that they can shave with. And that, that was a tremendous innovation from a hygiene standpoint, from a lot of different, uh, you know, standpoints. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's not exactly know. a question, but it's it's one of those things where the evolution in our thinking over the past like 15 years is just kind of fascinating and yeah. the priorities that people have as as consumers evolve over time, the capabilities that we have from a supply chain standpoint change over time. Materials, yeah. methods, all these things, yeah, that that you've got new innovation, you want to make things from it and then you might realize that there's Oh, oh, we were doing it better before when we made longer-lasting products. And one of your top relationships in terms of distribution is this company, a package-free shop that is happens to be a, a Lumi customer. You know, I actually don't know a lot about the company. I would love to have them on the podcast someday, but right. they sell a lot of, well, I guess your products as well as many other things. Like, how did you end up getting involved with them? They, they seem to be a force uh, in the world. Um, they Can are. you describe a little bit about, like how that works for you? I'd say that they're definitely one of the leaders in a, we'll call it the zero waste movement. So their their founder, Lauren Singer, uh, was one of those top voices in that movement as well. The concept being is re- reducing the waste that you produce throughout the year 
you, you see this term zero waste. It doesn't mean I produce, everyone produces zero waste. And I think that the, the quote circulating recently is it doesn't take everyone doing it perfectly. It takes a lot of people doing it imperfectly to make a big impact. Mm. So if you, you speak to people who follow the zero waste movement, you know, they're thinking consciously about reducing their single use plastics, whether that's uh, cups when they go out to coffee or straws is a big one, uh, razors, etc. bringing their own reusable bags to grocery stores. But also, um, like you mentioned with your car example, running down, if you have something in your, in your house that's still usable, don't replace it with something that's you know, metal and new because it's it's kind of cool. But keep, use the products that you have. Refuse purchasing of products uh, consciously when you don't need them. Things like that. And did they approach you, or how did that relationship begin? Yeah, they approached us actually. Uh, they found us through our Kickstarter mm. and were intrigued by the concept. And it, it moved pretty quickly into one of our most fruitful relationships from a reseller perspective. Was that something that was easy for you to decide on, like starting to have distributors and people that you work with as opposed to like controlling the retail process completely yourself? That was a tough call, honestly. You can go through a lot of thought experiments on whether, you know, as a quote-unquote DTC brand that Mm -hmm. you should remain single channel, direct-to-consumer. We've got a beautiful website. We have that relationship. We own the data, et cetera, et cetera. But we're a bootstrap business that's trying to grow and find every avenue that we can to reach more people. And we took a leap of faith that uh, opening up a wholesale channel for our business would be good from a relationship perspective, gain us a wider audience and help fund the growth of the business. And it has done that absolutely uh, to, the, to the point where we now have a significant wholesale business growing at Leash Shave. And is it, it it's it's diversified to some extent beyond just that, uh, or do you also sell on on Amazon or other places, or how do you think about that? We haven't leapt to Amazon just yet, but mm. we we have a um, uh, we have a, a backlog of dozens of people who are trying to work with us from wholesale, whether they're boutique shops or zero waste stores or or uh, barber shops, et cetera, and and we onboard them as quickly as we can, honestly, based on inventory constraints. But uh, it it's become something that you know if we have a physical presence pop up in Flor- in a small town in Florida, we see additional direct orders coming mm. from there as well. So it's kind of helps feed both sides of the business. Yeah, but it is a different skill set because especially if you start getting into working with barbershops, for example, they're probably going to say like, hey, I, I want to stock like one of these or right. like five <laughs> or 10 maybe, like if I just yeah. want to have like one of each color. But realistically, they're going to want very low unit counts, which you know, logistically is a completely different animal. Yeah, it is. It is, absolutely. I mean, we, we can stratify our wholesale customers to the you know, top volume and low volume. We, we, we have minimum volumes to become mm-hmm. a customer. We, uh, we can't satisfy everyone, of course, uh, but we are lean enough that we can manage those relationships, at least at the scale that we're at. We're still quite a small business from a headcount perspective. We were talking before we started recording about your fulfillment center, which sounds very official, but like, tell me a little bit about that operation, like, because you're yeah. doing that yourself. We are. We decided to keep fulfillment in-house uh, to, for a couple reasons. One is to, as we've grown the products, product lines and made changes and evolved, um, we needed to be really nimble at the fulfillment level mm-hmm. to understand how we kit things together, what are our customers ordering, uh, what do our returns look like, you know, the, that whole process. We wanted to 
really own it so that we could understand how the product was performing and then allow us to kind of delight and surprise customers. And at the scale we're at, it's, it's perfectly feasible. So we opened a fulfillment center in Connecticut. It's a small, a modest warehouse space that we do all the warehousing, inspection, and, and fulfilling out of and staffed by my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think that's smart, especially at the scale that you're at. And even, you know, you can probably keep going with that strategy for, for quite a long time, Definitely. especially as you're exploring distribution as a model versus direct-to-consumer, having all of your inventory be flexible to be able to be pushed yeah. into both different directions is really helpful in terms of, you know, lowering your inventory costs. Absolutely. We're very lean model right now. Let's talk a little bit about the manufacturing because this is, so this primarily made in Asia. It is. One of the things we've talked about in the past was just like, we've got like Trump in the office and different stuff happening. We like, do. We've got, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of tension occurring at the moment between like where are jobs going and tariffs and all these different things. What was your process of how you went about figuring out how to actually manufacture this thing? Yes. And and basically the nugget being like, why can't this be made in the U.S.? My partner and I have a decade plus, decades of experience manufacturing product in in the U.S. That from the type of manufacturers who, who produce um, the product that we have here. That uh, experience is primarily in the, in the medical device space, but it's allowed us a breadth of understanding of the capabilities necessary and the price points necessary to make this so that we could have margin to grow the business. We did go through a small quoting process with as many U.S.-based suppliers as, as we could figure out to validate our assumption, mm-hmm. and we were only proved correct from a cost perspective. There simply isn't the inventory of space and suppliers, manufacturers that make these types of things that uh, allow them to be competitive with the volume of folks that can make these things overseas. And and certainly what's important to us is making a a quality product with partners that we trust. And so we had to go and meet our suppliers face-to-face. And we produce this in Taiwan. Um, There's seven different factories that touch the product in its production. How many components are involved? And is it it purely just like the different steps of finishing that are involved or how does that work? Yeah, there's a lot of those different steps from the production of the the, the mold. So the, primarily this is a, a die-cast zinc product and then there's stainless steel parts where they need strength for size. So you've got your mold producers, um, you've got your your the folks who are actually doing the die-cast process. One of my favorite parts in the razor are the small leaves, as I like to call them, that hold the blades in the head. And these are stainless steel and originally designed we didn't know how they were, we were going to make them hmm. uh, you, you could machine them it'd be very expensive they're too small to cast so what we ended up doing was working hand in hand with our supplier in taiwan to validate a process uh, of a progressive die are, are you familiar tell me more so, explain for the people <laughs> so a, prog- a progressive die basically takes a, this hydraulic stamping process and through a series of steps ours has 18 that produce this thing takes sheet metal uh, steel in our case and stamps cuts folds and Mm. moves the sheet through this machine until you end up with a part that is geometrically tolerance and shaped such that it'll work and and that's how we produce these steel parts and it's one of my favorite uh, processes and a great example of a partner who 
was willing to work with a company of our size, where we would be very unlikely to find someone spending that time with us, U.S.-based, with the volumes that we had and the price point we wanted. And why why do you think that is? Uh, <laughs> well, um, it, for every you know one shop in the U.S. that could do this, there's probably a hundred over overseas that could do this. So there's the supply side. And then I don't I don't know. Uh, they've just been a lot more open to our business overseas, and, and 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 so we've gravitated towards it. Yeah, I mean it's the same conclusions I'm going to keep mentioning. I, I love the podcast um, that the Studio Neat puts out because it's so um, granular. If you're trying to understand like what goes into every single decision around something like this, it really you know, helps people understand they went through the same thing, you know, Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's just also the, the, the system integration of all of these different processes that need to be uh, happening one after the other geographically within a, a, a close proximity to kind of complete right. the entire assembly of this thing with your, you know, variety of different finishes. I'm, I'm assuming some factories are able to do some finishes or there's some pre uh, steps that need to occur. Yeah, there are multiple methods for making the six different finishes that we have. Yeah, so all of that being within like close proximity, having the competition between all of the different manufacturers there, having yeah. the expertise all kind of like, when you go and actually are working with them from an engineering standpoint or from a QC standpoint, how do you get over the the, the language barrier? How do you get over the the trust and trying to, you know, kind of making sure that once you leave, like everything's going to keep going according to plan. How does that part work for you? Those are tough challenges when you're trying to make something thousands and thousands of miles away. Uh, we have a, a guy on the ground there in Taiwan. His name is Eddie. He was connected to us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great. Uh, from a mutual connection in Pittsburgh uh, where we de- originally developed this product. And he was the intermediary for a U.S.-based buyer of... I think it was Kaufman's originally back you know, mm. a couple of decades ago. And so Eddie, very proficient in English and, of course, native Taiwanese. And he's our translator and our guide and the person who quotes out. He doesn't work for a specific manufacturer. He go he went and quoted and did a lot of the initial groundwork to identify who could potentially be suitable. He's our on-the-ground QC uh, mm-hmm. of the door. Um, he's been an amazing partner of ours, and it, it's been a lot of fun working with him. Even that being said, he's not an employee of ours, and you know he has work on a kind of a contract basis. And there is there's cultural challenges in working um, with some of these manufacturers, and ultimately it's trust but verify. So we trust that they're going to make what we send over to them and, and implement the changes that we expect them to implement. But we must verify that, and so we are on our third production run of these razors right now. And it's still pretty new from a perspective of a manufacturer making a product. We give them the space and time to learn mm-hmm. themselves. They're going to make it you know, 10,000, 20,000 times and figure out, okay, these are the things that I need to tweak to make it better. And um, this is the quality feedback that we see on the ground. You know, we track every warranty, return, claim, and understand where it's categorized. Yeah. So we can feed that back. But we also inspect 100% of the product coming into the U.S. Yeah. That was something that we had a recent episode with Ollie, uh, the the pet food company. We'll we'll put a, a link in the show notes. But that was something that you know, from my experience, kind of building products before we got into what we do today at, at Lumi, right. it was so frustrating. Is that you have to know an Eddie type of person, and like you have to go find that person. 
And actually, when you go search on Alibaba, most of the people who are there are not manufacturers. They're people like Eddie. who, right. And they're all sort of competing with each other in yeah. a way that's very opaque. And that was like one of the big things that we wanted to try and solve with, with Lumi was just like having primary source information on like who are the actual manufacturers and then taking on that responsibility of like, you know, we go to to China or, or most of our plastics stuff is made in, in Asia just because of the economies of scale and, and right. costs, uh, whereas most of the paper stuff that we make is made in the U.S. But being there, we we have our, like our eddy people are now like yeah. in-house at Limi and it makes such a difference because the culture there is completely different and, and, and understanding, having that understanding of like how manufacturers operate over there is, is quite different. It is. And, and all credit to them, they're very competent yeah. engineers and manufacturers and they really know their stuff. They've, they've guided us in a lot of ways that we didn't mm. know how to tackle problems. And Eddie is really useful. You guys are our Eddie for packaging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And and one thing that um, going back to the package-free shop that was kind of a surprise when you told me, and it sounds like it was a surprise to you too, was, and maybe because package-free shop was founded by Lauren Singer, was seems to have a, a very female-driven audience um, that this that this device that I was just mentioning is like got this very tactical, yeah. you know, like look and feel has ended up becoming, you know, quite popular in that demographic, which is we very fascinating. We had no idea. We, yeah. I mean, you know, we originally designed and developed it because we had problem shaving and we wanted to solve some issues. Um, and both my co-founder and I are, are, are men, and we got it in the hands of women as well. Uh, but we expected our primary audience to be men, and it started off that way. Our Kickstarter was 90% men who supported us. Uh, since then, in the last six months, we're much closer to, if not tipped a little bit in the scales uh, towards the, our female audience and users, at fifty, but roughly 50-50 uh, users, and it certainly fluctuates month to month. That was a huge surprise to us, and we've figured out how to work with that and what we need to do from a um, how to reach that audience because we know we've hit a, a we've met a need that, that I don't know why, uh, but it seems that there are more female people interested in the zero waste movement, mm. uh, which is w- way larger than we had even ever expected, uh, than they seem to be men. I, I don't quite know why, but in order to cater to them, we've had to figure out how to you know, make sure that we account, account for their perspective and speak the right language. And ultimately, we f- feel very strongly, and it always has been, that this is a gender-neutral yeah. product. There's no reason why a female or a male blade to skin needs to be any different. The only difference that I can think of is just where you're using it and how that like, you know, is there different contours or curves that you need to accommodate if you're shaving a leg versus a face or an armpit or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, leg to head, uh, armpit to wherever. Yeah. um, You've got different, different um, uh, contours and, and, and different sensitivities too, actually skin sensitivities in in certain areas. So um, it, we kind of backed into being lucky in that our razor is uh, customizable to you can make it more or less aggressive, mm-hmm. and that turned out to be a huge selling point to a lot of our mm. women users that they can dial the aggressive back if they need to, mm. or pull it back up if 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 they need to. Is there anything that you're thinking about in terms of like future iterations that you would want to change? We are we have a deep and and varied pipeline of products <laughs> <laughs> that we're slowly working our way through. If you think about kind of gendered changes, 
Uh, no, not honestly. We think about it as a pretty gender neutral product in general. Um, How about from a body like location uh, standpoint? Yes. So the the one thing that we we can um, we can nail uh, hit the nail on the head is uh, is improving the size of the the razor head. Hmm. Um, it, because the geometry of, the ra- of our razor has driven by the geometry of the blades. Yeah. And um, we have an opportunity in a next generation where we're working on that is to uh, to take some material out to make it a little bit slimmer. Mm. The challenge is because men um, shave uh, often under their uh, nose on top of their lip. So you've got kind of access problems mm. sometimes if you don't figure out the right angle to make it work for you. Uh, turns out women don't have any access problems. And so, you know, it, the most common complaint has been the size of the razor head from men. And we literally never hear that from women. So Fascinating. You mentioned um, Pittsburgh and your new location in, in Connecticut. Well, Pittsburgh is, is also fascinating to me just because, uh, and we, we've covered a little bit of Pittsburgh uh, on the podcast when we had the folks from Cotton Bureau on. Yeah, absolutely. But you've left there since since mm-hmm. um but the company was founded there and your co-founder is founded is is still based out of there just like geographically in ter- terms of where you're based like is there anything that you took out of being there pittsburgh is a steel city you've got the steel product is that related in any way not really it's I not guess. it's a nice happy coincidence i love <laughs> yeah. pittsburgh i went there for grad school at carnegie mellon and oh, that's yeah. where i met my co-founder and we had that other business but yeah, I don't know. It's a wonderful town. It's gone through a lot of changes in the last decade and a half. Uh, it's significantly more focus on on the type of people moving in and all the tech companies starting up. And right. um, you know, it's getting more expensive. The food's getting better, consequently, which is great. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm from the East Coast, so I moved back home, and so we have kind of a split location. And and because right now you're you're three people in the company. How does that how does that work out for you in terms of uh, collaboration and? Yeah, we're really well. Uh, Adam and I work well together. We always have um, at the medical device startup we worked at. He ran the mechanical engineering group. I ran the marketing um, and kind of that commercial group. And so that's how we split our duties here. You know, we're both engineers, but I let him do the the nerdy stuff. He's super smart at designing small uh, intricate mechanisms. So he does manufacturing, engineering design. I do customer service, sales, marketing, and the operational flow of, of, of delivering to customers. So the thing that people wouldn't know is that you also like have a, <laughs> a job. This is like your, your side yeah, kid. I, right. I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know how you <laughs> split up your time. I've been trying to convince you ever since I first he- heard about this mm-hmm. that you got to go full time with this and like really invest yourself. How far are we from being able to do that? Ooh, no comment. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I, I have a um, uh, my career is in medical technologies, and yeah. and, and after we sold the last startup, I I joined another one. I'm, I work for one in in uh, Southern California, and I love it. I, I mean, I really love that world, and so I do have a foot in both worlds right now. Uh, and we're, we're making it work. My, uh, it's one of the reasons that we can survive is my, my wife, April is our fulfillment manager or what, so to speak, she does all of the, um, uh, that side of the business, which has helped me keep a foot into uh, a day job, but it's definitely been interesting. Is there anything that you learned from the, the medical device industry that you're applying here aside from just maybe pure engineering, but what is it, uh, it what is the culture like in that, in that environment? I don't really understand it very well or know very much about it. 
Well, I've, I've got to say that this is a breath of fresh air from the a regulatory perspective. Mm. Uh, in medical devices, of course, one of the maybe the second most highly regulated industry, right. nuclear, perhaps. There's just years of like, uh, you know, going through all the steps. Yeah. I mean, it can take it can take years, half a decade or more to bring something to market. Um, it, there's FDA regulate you know, quality systems you have to put in place. And so I think what I could bring over um, was a, an appreciation that we could design, develop something and then, and then release it tomorrow if we wanted to without having the FDA clear it. Um, but, but understanding the fundamentals of building a, a quality management system in a highly regulated industry allows us to think critically about the quality maintenance of our products and making sure that um, we can feed that into the, the design system. I think that's maybe the biggest thing I've brought over. Um, I actually bring skills back and forth. So as we're building this direct consumer business, I'm learning all about making packaging and you know a lot of digital marketing things. And I've been able to bring that into the medical device hmm. job that I have and kind of instill some vin and vigor in yeah. that side. So it's been fun. Describe a little bit of some of the products that you've worked on on the medical side. Yeah, so I, my career has been in, in high-tech, uh, computer-assisted uh, surgical products and uh, almost entirely in the orthopedic space. Hmm. Um, and so, so basically helping surgeons achieve results using the intelligence of computer-assisted navigation and sensor-based technologies. So if you're putting a knee or hip replacement in, you want to make sure it goes in straight in in the right space. And the technologies I've worked on help people do that. What's your te- take on like all of the the automation and and like I don't know like machine vision and all that stuff that's going into those those jobs nowadays? Yeah, the technologies that I work on are never trying to replace a surgeon. So we don't want a, a robot doing your knee surgery because the robot didn't go to med school. Yeah, everyone's and fellowship. seen, <laughs> but everyone's seen the like robot that's peeling a little grape, you know, and yeah, it's got it's got taken off the skin and everything in a, like a very precise way. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's studies now out there saying like like a uh, an uh, a machine vision like uh, radiologist is is going to be more accurate than a human radiologist. And I, I'm just, I don't I don't doubt it. I'm just I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying like <laughs> well, I'm going to take the the like uh, devil's the, the advocate position. It's, it's yeah. certainly possible that there there are surgeons are are pressing a button now. You know, in in twenty years they're, they're pressing a button of go and something operates. There's so much art and science behind achieving. Uh, a result that brings a patient back to uh, normal function. And, and so it's that art part that mm-hmm. technology hasn't yet figured out how to capture, at least in the space that I've operated in. There's plenty of technology there, but all of it is assistive technology, not replaceive technology. It, it makes me think of all the stuff that Boeing's been going through recently because, like, obviously, yeah. like, I, I, you know, I think it's common knowledge now, but I, I know that at least for myself, like, five or 10 years ago, I probably wasn't thinking so much that, you know, airline pilots are basically pressing a couple buttons. <laughs> I mean, but we still want some uh, human being to be to be present if something goes wrong. But the more we abstract away, like the interface of what is happening behind the scenes in terms of like adding so much intelligence to the machine that you can no, no longer really control it, that um, you you have things like what, what happened recently with Boeing. The analogy that comes to my mind is in... So in the medical world, um, an anesthesiologist is often uh, likened to a pilot in that you know, when you're piloting a plane, you, your tough part, quote unquote, not to be cavalier about it, is taking off and landing. Mm-hmm. If you're, you're prepping a patient for surgery, the 
watch out points for anesthesiologists, mm. putting them under and bringing them back. Mm. Um, meanwhile, they're monitoring throughout, but you know, those are kind of the, the challenging pieces. And we haven't replaced an anesthesiologist yet. Uh, you know, I, I think we're a long way from self-driving, uh, self-flying airplanes. I don't know. <laughs> I, what, I'm, what I'm asking is at what point do you just put your face in a box and then it shaves you? Yeah, well, okay, yeah. If we want to bring it back home, I'm 100% on board that. I, uh, I guess that's laser hair removal. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. I don't know what the equivalent of that is in the future. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to see that future, though. <laughs> yeah, you want, you want to be manually shaving for the rest? Well, actually, you know, it's funny because it, there was a huge community of people who use traditional safety razors mm. and they way bigger than, I mean, the shaving nerds that I, I love them, right? Because they're, they're one of our best test audiences and they shave that way because they love it. They like the experience of it, yeah. of lathering their soap and taking the blade to their skin and, right. and being technical about it. Uh, that art, I don't think that'll ever be lost. There's something very tangible that even the the younger folks coming about nowadays they like physical things you know you put their phone down pick something up that's that's made well i have a collection of coffee makers that is like my version of that which is just like how can i make coffee in the most fussy way possible um (laughs) just because it's not about like i i'm you know i i i rebel against you know like the the pods the nespresso pods and stuff like that not yeah. not only from a sustainability standpoint but but just True. from more of a uh craft point like i for me i like the ritual of like you know grinding wait so when i wa- walked in and you offered me a cup of coffee you i missed, said no thank you, you. missed, out, <laughs> I missed <yeah>. out. <laughs> well i don't know it's not like i make the greatest co- coffee in the world but okay. it's but it's more about that i enjoy the process of kind of going through all the steps and you know, you've got this, like, it's a, it's a tool, you know, I just, yes, I haven't gone down that path with shaving. I'm, I'm a, I'm an, I'm an electric shaver person, oh, but, boy. <laughs> but, uh, not that I'm, I'm not like uh religious or, or, uh, dogmatic about it. I just haven't gone down. You know what? I've been, I've been afraid to, to make the jump and maybe I need to well, get over that. Take a razor, put it on the safest setting. You'll be okay. Of course, I'm saying this sporting a beard right now. <laughs> what? Yeah, do people do people comment on that? Well, we are uh, under development of a new product, the Twig, and it's a, um, a use for it can be beard trimming and sculpting. Mm. So, uh, yeah, the first line tester. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. What did we forget to talk about? I'm looking at my list here. Taiwan, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. Making things overseas. Bootstrapping. Bootstrapping. How's that going for you? It's good. Um, we, we were in a nice position when we started the business that we had an exit from our medical device company and we both participated in. And that gave us some capital and some time to, we both took a year off from working anywhere and uh, focused on building this into a business. That's what led up to the Kickstarter launch. We self-funded all of the R&D. Um, we raised a little over 100K on Kickstarter in 2016. That didn't cover the minimum order um, production manufacturing. So we continued to fund the business through production and manufacturing. Uh, now it's, it persists and grows on its on its own strength, which is a nice place to be in, obviously. And I think going back to what you were saying about you know your experience in me- medical devices, it's nice to be able to take all of that expertise and like distill it down to something like a one product that is you know yeah. launchable, MVPable. You can sell it. You can focus on that and try to make it go as far as possible. Yeah, um, without getting distracted. Yeah. We've fallen victim to that. We're like, well, let's make a lot of other things to surround the razor. And we've tried some things. You know, we have a small set 
of accessories that really work for us. But we've tried some things and we've eaten inventory because it just didn't work out. Um, and we try to be conscious and we try to apply the same conscious consumerism that we, we think our customers are applying when they buy our razor to how we produce and think about where we extend our product lines. Yeah, that's that's it's also been a theme recently. We uh, we had the the founders of Floyd on the podcast, and it's like just going slower with the product development and just yeah. making each each new product very consciously, spending time on the de- design and like the testing phase of it and getting feedback and just being more intentional is something that I, I really want to see more companies uh, do, and especially people like you who you know have a lot of knowledge from coming from another industry there's never been a better time to like make the jump into like trying to take some of that and make something you know for the world that is like going to be at least you know marginally better i agree it largely significantly better yeah <laughs> well i hope everyone goes and, and checks out your your website that's just leaf shave l-e-a-f shave.com anything else you want to point people to uh we have a pretty active audiencing uh on instagram yeah, we do a lot of fun things there, and I'll say if you uh, order from us and you write a haiku in your order notes, um, April will write something back and give you a little something special. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, I have to try that out. Ooh, one last thing before we go, I'm talking to you at home. What's your favorite brand these days? Is there something that you think is really well made, or maybe someone that you'd love for me to talk to? Send us a tweet. We are at Lumi, L-U-M-I, on Twitter. We're making this show for you, so tell us what you want to hear, and we'll make it happen. Thanks. See you next time.